Well, hello and welcome to What's Brewing, CISFA. What's Brewing, CISFA is a podcast produced for the California Community College's Student Financial Aid Administrators Association. I'm your host, Dennis Schrader. I serve as the 2021-2022 CISFA past president. My co-host Dana has taken some time off this week to prepare the family Thanksgiving dinner, so it's just me and you today. So let's get this show started. And again, welcome to another episode of What's Brewing CISFA. Let's start the show off with our first cups. Or I should say the remnants of the first cup of coffee, which will sit in my coffee cup here and slowly evaporate as I've drank most of it away. The holiday blend from one of those gigantic corporate coffee makers. Otherwise, it's sparkling water for the rest of us, for the rest of the day. So uh, this being a regular Tuesday show, we'll go through some news items, editorial type things and all that. But just at the top here, this is a uh, thing for those who are in CISFA and listening to the show. You may start to get some information in the next few weeks about conference, which is coming up in March, and we are planning in person. And then also about elections. So those who are interested in running can contact me, of course, directly. Or uh, whatever information we put on the website as far as nominating others also. Because we will be electing our 2022-23 officers sometime just after the start of the new calendar year. So just keep that in mind. Let's start off with some news here on our front. First coming from us from edsource.org. A little note here for us in California that, you know, after his administration sent with the Biden administration, Eloy Oakley will return back as a California Community College's chancellor. For those who didn't know, Mr. Oakley is the chancellor of the California Community College's system. doesn't mean that he rules over us all, um, because in California, at least, our community colleges are all locally controlled. But he has been the chancellor of the system of 116 community colleges. But if you didn't know, also, he was a number of months ago pulled in by the Biden administration to help on some of the Build Back Better agenda. But in a Twitter announcement this morning, he did announce that it is his time again to return and transition back to his role as chancellor. So we can expect to see him back in the state and see updates from him and our interim or acting chancellor, Daisy Gonzalez, who's one of the vice chancellors, uh, will return to her role at the system office. On to our next item from the California Student Aid Commission. They had put out a special alert just a day ago indicating that there would be some additional virtual training events coming up for the rest of this year and the early part of 2022. Breaks down into three categories. There is, of course, training for high school staff, which is the annual statewide financial aid workshops. These are ones that me and a number of other people from CISFA 
and CASFA get involved with annually <laughs> to put out these workshops. It used to be called the high school counselor workshops, but because the audience goes beyond high school counselors to student advocacy groups, outreach specialists, and community educational partners, they retitled it a couple years ago. But it goes over information about the FAFSA, Cal Grants, California Dream Act application, and also programs for foster youth. So for more information on this and the other trainings I'll talk about, I'm going to give you a link in the show notes to get to this. Because the other two parts that they are focusing on for virtual training would be, of course, training for college financial aid staff. Things on, again, Cal Grant 101 for those who are brand new to financial aid. Cal Dream Act application, the whole process as a review. Understanding transfer entitlement program the program there and also for us because it's part of understanding how many years a student could get Cal grant, how the education level verification process works. And then lastly, the last group of people address are of course training for the general public. So the cash for college workshops that used to be primarily in-person big events. I used to do these on my campus a lot are virtual and available for students and parents. So with the 2022-23 FAFSA, you know, just coming out this last October, and the California Dream Act application at the same time, we want to get students through these workshop webinars if they need help filling out the forms. So I'll give you a link to the special alert in the show notes so you can get the links to all these. Separately from the National College Attainment Network, which is a group out there that really is out there about helping students get through into college and through college, they have their FAFSA resource library. I got a link of this from a friend. So everything from a planning calendar for understanding the FAFSA cycle, understanding how to complete the form and all the updates, you know, from year to year as far as what's new. You know, how to help engage others if you need help in doing FAFSA workshops for us professionals out there. And just a number of other resources available. So I'll give you a link to the specific part of what they call their FAFSA resource library in our show notes. From NASFA, because of course we can't do a What's Brewing CISFA show without having NASFA mentioned at some point. They have a good pop quiz here, and I know this will sometimes, you know, upset some people's apple carts, but also help them refocus on how to process financial aid in their pop quiz for today. What is an interesting question that I think I got the right answer to, and it is, is this student eligible for fall aid with an updated SAP status? So in short, what they're talking about is Satisfactory Academic Progress, SAP. It's a requirement for students who receive federal aid and thus also state aid, really. And what it does is it tells a school that we have to track to make sure students are making satisfactory academic progress. In other words, they're completing a certain percentage of their classes on time. They are maintaining a GPA that will get them to the finish line of being able to graduate and hopefully also on top of that, they're completing their program within 
a set period of time as far as for the number of units or credits that they're attempting. You know, for example, if you're doing a two-year associate degree that takes about 60 units, the standard is 150% of that length. So a student would have up to 90 units they could attempt to complete their program. Understanding that students may occasionally fail classes, need some remedial classes, need some uh, uh, different classes because they're changing their academic program. So take all that into account, and that's part of this SAP status or criteria. So the, the scenario they put forth is, you know, a student who, after the spring term, is not eligible for aid for the coming fall semester. Uh, and they do an appeal, and it's denied. But then after fall grades come in, and their status is calculated for the following spring semester. Now they're meeting standards. So the question is, can you go back and give them money for the fall? And the answer is, no, you can't, because at that time, they were not eligible for aid. It isn't a thing that just opens up the whole year for aid eligibility. Now there's more in-depth to this, but it's kind of the short answer to this whole thing here on the pop quiz and I definitely say, and I'll give you the link to this item, that you should definitely check out some of the pop quiz items out at the NASFA website. One other thing from NASFA here, and I'll include a link to it in our show notes, is about a new report detailing student loan debt levels across the country. So, you know, it is varied uh, across state to state. But the data point here can tell the full story about how Americans with bachelor degrees are faring with their student loan debt once they graduate. And this comes from an annual report put out by TICAS, which is the Institute for College Access and Success. I can say I've worked with TICAS on a number of occasions because they've put out a number of reports over the years on a variety of things like uh, understanding barriers for students to apply for aid. I believe that was called uh, green light, red tape, or red light, green tape, something like that. Talking about, again, <clears throat> how some of our processes add extra red tape uh, to students trying to get aid. What I found interesting when looking at the actual report, though, and it's not super long, 38 pages, was there was a table early on, on page 10 of the report, of student debt by state. And looking at table one, which are the high debt states, it was interesting when you look at this top 10 list. And think of it regionally. These are them running from top to bottom. New Hampshire, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, Vermont, Massachusetts, Washington, D.C., and Maine. I think we've covered the Northeast. Almost in full. And then you go to the table with the low debt states. Starting with the lowest. Utah, New Mexico, California, Nevada, Wyoming, Washington, Arizona, Florida, Hawaii, and Idaho. To me, it sounds like we've covered the whole West. Including Hawaii. And then... For whatever reason, Florida's in there too. And sometimes that's just a case of, um, and California being on this list, the fact that we have generally lower tuition at many of our public school, schools. 
public universities and community colleges, and thus probably lowering the need for finance, uh, student loans. But I'm going to let you read through the whole report. There's a whole lot more breakdown by state as far as uh, average debt, percentage of students with student loan debt, because that can be uh, interesting too. I mean, South Dakota, for whatever reason here, of the class of 2020, 73% of their students had student loan debt. But at the same time, um, other states like North Carolina was only 55%. So there's a lot of data here, but it's a nice report. Tikus does a good job of putting it all together because they're always looking at accessibility, affordability, you know, and of course, then on the end of that, you know, persistence and completion, you know, you know, a little bit of college is useful, but as they say, students who have the actual degree, that's the payoff when it comes to, in general, having higher wages later in life. Well, we have more news, but I'm going to take a little uh, musical breather here for us so we can move our way into our second cup segment. And just like that, it's time to welcome you back for the second cup or refill time. Maybe I'll talk to Dana about that if we should call it refill. It's the refill time. But some uh, other articles that aren't specific to financial aid always here. There was an update put out at the Higher Ed Dive. It's a nice uh, website with news on what's going on in higher ed in general. Update. According to them, the update, an update shows undergraduate enrollment decline growing to 3.5% this fall. So in, in short, undergraduate enrollment sank 3.5% this fall, according to the latest data from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. And these figures, based on almost three-fourths of institutions that report their enrollment as of October, are largely in line with numbers the organization released last month. So what they're saying is, according to their data, overall higher ed enrollment is about 2.6% below last year's numbers. Graduate enrollment increased 2.1% year over year. And that, uh, according to this, undergraduate enrollment continued to decline across all types of institutions, uh, but in particular, four-year for-profits and the community colleges had the highest of losses, 8.5% at the four-year for-profits and 6% at community colleges. I can say in my institution, a number of them that I talk to counterparts across the state here of California, that's true. You know, we've, uh, we have varying numbers from a few percentage points to double digits at some schools for losses over this year-to-year time or year-to-year-to-year, really, period of time. So this is information coming from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. I'll give you a link to the Higher Ed Dive article and they've got some graphs and links to their information beyond that (coughs) sorry about that Uh, beyond that there was an article from dan walters at calmatters calmatters.org a nonpartisan news site but he also does reporting for sacramento b 
And his article kind of takes off of some stuff we talked about over the last few weeks. His article is paying so much to earn so little. And it talks about, you know, what uh, we look at here. And as he starts, it could be called diploma creep, creep, diploma creep. And as he writes, at the dawn of the 20th century, an eighth grade education was considered the norm in the U.S. Fewer than 7% of public school students even earned high school diplomas in 1900 and tiny numbers went on to college. But compare that to now, you know, by the end of the 20th century, anyone who lacked a high school diploma was deemed a failure and college degrees were entry-level requirements for white-collar jobs. I'd say that's very, very true when you look at it. And so his report and reporting reports into uh, the Wall Street Journal article we talked about where uh, USC in particular in working with a for-profit company, recruited students for an online master's degree program. And when looking at the numbers, you know, students had fairly high levels of debt compared to earnings coming out of school. Uh, And then also some other things beyond that in the article. But it looks at, you know, again, are we looking at a case where for what you're paying, are you really getting a return on your investment in the school or the program of study you're doing. So I'm going to give you a link to this. It's got good links out to some other articles that have talked about things, again, like this issue at uh, USC. Some things relating to some scholarship programs within L.A. and and more that's going on across the state. Moving over to CNBC. They had an interesting article, and I think it's very true, titled, You're More Likely to Have Your FAFSA Verified Than to Have Your Taxes Audited. Here's why. So for those we've talked a little bit about before on the show about the process we call verification. So a student completes their FAFSA, and the federal government reviews it, and they have an algorithm for determining this, but they'll ask that a school, financial aid office, verify certain things from that FAFSA. Not for every student, not all the information. For most students, it's focused on income, sometimes assets, but mostly income, and the number of people they're reporting for the household or going to college. Those are the big items that we're usually required to verify. The percentage of students every year, though, is significantly higher, as this article points out, and we've always known, than anyone who's ever picked by the IRS for an audit. In the old days, it used to be it's kind of set at about 30%. But some years would be much higher because the federal government's got their algorithm that determines this. And some years, uh, for example, at the start of this last, the current school year, I should say, the 2021-2022 cycle, about 17% of students were being selected for verification. And so, although not a great reasoning was given between wise one way or the other, because, again, as it, uh, as it states here in the article, the odds of having your taxes audited by the IRS have fallen significantly over the last decade. Agency audited about 0.45%, less than half a percent here, of individual tax returns in the fiscal year 2019, down more than half from where it was in 
2010, when about a little over 1%, 1.11% of taxpayers were audited. And so in the article, as it says here, the Department of Ed cites their justification for the 18% area, you know, for the current year, uh, based on a cost-benefit analysis and determined that the cost of performing verification exceeds the benefits when it selects more than about 18% of filers. And this was an an analyst uh, uh, restatement from NASFA, a NASFA analyst here. But... Uh, but it's an interesting, the last sentence here from her is, the IRS audit rate is much lower, but I don't know their justification for that rate. And that's true. I mean, it's apples and oranges, but it is something that, again, I know this comes up at conferences oftentimes when someone will stand up and go, why did a student get selected for verification when all they did was dot, dot, dot. And it's something I always, uh, I did, uh, I finally got an answer that made sense one time at a conference it was like, why would they have to be selected for verification if they just updated their phone number or their email address or something like that? And, well, it, the, the person who was presenting at the time uh, put it out there pretty strongly uh, and, and succinctly. Think about it. If you can't get your email address or phone number right on the FAFSA, what is the chances that the income information you're presenting on that form is any more accurate? So it's a matter of degree of quality versus quantity. So it is a, uh, something interesting to think about. Last couple articles here for the day. We have one from Education Next, which is a quarterly magazine that I get at home. But they have great articles that covers education from K through 12 into higher education. And they had something recently posted called Lower Bars, Higher College GPAs. And it talks about how great inflation is boosting college graduation rates. And so, you know, when we talk about college, you know, the big thing, as they say, is completion. Because, again, completing a college degree allows you to, you know, move on to the next step, you know, associate degree to bachelor degree. Bachelor degree maybe on to grad school and thus. But... how are we getting to these higher completion rates? And so the article looks at somehow, somewhat how college graduation rates have risen in the 2000s alone. And so at community colleges, for example, back in 1988, 19.6% of students graduated, probably within a six-year period. They usually have a wider range in just a couple years. And in 2002, at the start of that time, it was 24.3%. But, you know, it seemingly has gone up. But is there a case of, you know, great inflation that's keeping students, in a sense, on track and getting them out with degrees, but potentially inflating their grades beyond what they actually had earned? So it's a bit of a long read, and uh, it's got nice, easy-to-understand graphics. Uh, I couldn't read it all to you. Lots of good article uh, authors here. There's five people on the list here. Definitely worth checking out. One last article for you, and this one is uh, interesting because it involves a community college here in California and something many of us enjoy. Coming from the Napa Valley Register newspaper, Napa Valley College Board accepts Wine Spectator's $10 million gift for Wine Education Center. I don't think anyone could fault us for uh, liking this article at all. 
So Napa Valley College has accepted a $10 million gift to its wine education program and is going to label its future home with the benefactor's name. So according to this, this is the largest donation ever made by the Wine Spectator Scholarship Foundation. So Wine Spectator is a magazine out there. There's a number of other ones like Wine Enthusiast that reviews wines and, you know, keeps up with the times as far as wines overall. So Wine Spectator um, will include some additional funds on top of this potentially, but it's a, a significant amount of money put up by uh, Marvin Shankin. He is a publisher of Wine Spectator along with Cigar Aficionado and some other magazines aimed at, you know, lifestyle uh, type of things. But according to this, you know, he first began traveling to Napa Valley in the 70s, but says that he didn't become aware of the college's wine education program till about five years ago. So it sounds like a very interesting thing here. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, how many people start flocking to want to work at Napa Valley College. Apparently they have anywhere from 800 to 1,000 programs in their viticulture wine uh, programs, you know, degrees and certificates up there. Sounds very, very interesting here. So Napa Valley College, way to go. Hope to see uh, what the outcome of this is. It looks like a new class space. Some, uh, let's see here, a 6,000-square-foot sensory classroom with 100 student spaces that could be divided into smaller spaces, equipment lighting, and acoustic design suited for wine sensory classes. A second phase uh, would create a wine lab and other lab spaces and air purification for tasting instruction. So there's a lot to it out there. The wine business is a pretty big business. And, of course, that means that we do need to have educational programs for students in these type of things. I wish our school was near somewhere we could put up a winery. Would be nice. But instead of that, all you're going to get today from me is a little bit of music as we move our way through. like that we're back for what else but the last sip as i may have uh, uh said you know dana is out today this is the week of thanksgiving so there will not be a show on friday as friday campus will be closed most people will be busy uh out shopping or those who can't handle that shopping online or possibly just passed out in front of the TV. But we'll have our next show after today, next week, Tuesday, with some news. And hopefully we'll get Dana in on it, too. I don't have a I Dare You To selection for you today at this point, except for, for those who are in CISFA or in the community colleges and the financial aid offices. I will dare you to run for office. And again, expect to see some messaging in the next couple weeks here to fill our positions. We have, of course, president-elect. We have treasurer-elect. Both of those uh, offices are three-year terms. You serve as the elect, then the actual position the next year, and then the past person the year after. We have a vice president of state issues opening. We have a secretary opening. 
And I think that might be our main ones because our VP of uh, federal issues is a two-year one, but it's off cycle. So we're halfway through that uh, period for that person. But state issues, if you're interested, is a great position to learn about and stay on top of what's going on in the state relating to financial aid. So I'll put that there out to you. Run for office. Otherwise, that's all we have time for today. But don't worry, we'll have another episode or two next week. I want to thank you, our audience, again, for joining us today on What's Brewing CISO. And if you have something to say or you have topics for, uh, you want us to discuss, email us at wbcisfa at gmail.com. You can always find this and all What's Brewing CISFA podcasts on Google Podcasts, your Apple Podcasts app, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the TuneIn app on your Amazon Echo by using Alexa. What's Brewing CISFA is a production of Studio 1051, a creative collaboration of me and Dana Yarbrough. This has been episode number 140, recorded Tuesday, November 23rd. 2021. Everybody have a great day and have a great week.